Episode 10 Piggy A human shape embellishes the gravel-lumpy concrete cuboids that decorate the police station forecourt. The gathering darkness begins its nightly battle with the artificial lights, and Elle's figure is painted in solid grey. She sits round-shouldered and peeps from under bulging eyelids at the swishing glass doors. The air is unseasonably humid, clammy almost. The scene is set. We're ready then, for a reunion, are we? The warm air from the door whoosh tickles Elle's face and she raises her chin. First out, a tall man in a dark suit on the phone. She's out, yep. Eyewitness corroboration and we'll wait for the autopsy. No need at the moment, not without further evidence. It's still possible. Likely, even. You did well to secure it. Indeed. All right, I'll keep you informed. He trots away. Behind him, his client steps out and pauses. She looks relieved to be in the evening air. Elle allows herself a slight stretch of the lips, a little sparkle. Charity stops and stares, then smiles, her long hair flying in the warm air. All right? Hey, yeah. Elle pockets a lighter she's been playing with. You back? Looks like it. Good. Yeah. How did you know? Just come out myself. Really? Elle nods. About Padma? Yeah. Right. Charity searches her face. Elle steps forward. I saw you. At Padma's. I told them, she says. Charity's eyes widen. As she takes in breath to begin her questions, Elle stops her. You walking? Come on, let's go. Two young women, same height almost, black jackets, hoods up, only the ends of Charity's red hair giving her away, or they could be twins in the low light, in the darkening evening. From two floors above, looking down out of the window of the break room, Ruby sees the bright hair flick about, touches her injured forehead as the memory of that day revisits her. Her mouth twists as she ponders. She shifts her concentration to her phone, scrolls through her photographs, turns the screen this way and that, trying to make out shapes and objects from her snaps of the journey she took along the track with Mr. Barron. Gavin. She flicks a smile, shakes it off. Good work today, Hussein. Ruby spins round. Thank you, sir. Very impressive. Sorry about the injury, have you? Yes, sir, it's nothing, sir, just a scrape. Right, well, home now, is it? Yes, sir. Um, sir? Officer? Are we... Fully confident in the veracity of Miss Smith's witness statement, sir. The D.I. cocks his head and blinks. I mean, in terms of the decision not to charge Miss Farhay, I, uh, I mean, something's not sitting right with me, sir. The D.I. widens his eyes. 
Officer, are you trying to tell me that you think I've made a poor decision today? No, sir. That's not what I meant at all. If this investigation isn't being run to your satisfaction, well, we can always find a different little project for you to... Sir, I'm very happy with the investigation, sir. Not that it matters what I think, sir. Sorry, sir. I'll see you tomorrow, sir, if that's all right. The DI allows the paws to fatten nicely. See you tomorrow, Ruby. Ruby jerks her head up at the use of her given name, then drops it again. Sir, she says, and hastens away. In the locker room, Ruby gives a tight smile to Jordan, also preparing for home, and to Billy, her partner. She turns back to her locker. She's decided all over again that she can't trust either of them, not really. They each tower over her. She thinks, again, that perhaps this isn't the right path she's on. It's not that she's bad at policing. She's just not brilliant at being part of the actual police. Sat in her little car in the car park, she scrolls through her photos again, shakes her head as she does, lingers on an odd close-up of part of Gavin's head and his hand holding that old hospital ID tag. She can just see the end of the date, presumably the date of birth, 2004. Her eyes focus again on Gavin. Hmm. There was something he wasn't telling her. Outside, the dark tarmac on the ground lies wetly under a pale grey and yellowish sky, reflecting as it does the incessant glare from the town. Among the tufts of dead vegetation at the edges of the car park, snails haul themselves along on their rubbery muscles. The bright white LED lights bathe them in a stark glare. They battle on, wearily. Owl is watching. Occasionally a mouse is to be found venturing from beneath the pyracantha. She scans the edges of the space, but returns her blinking gaze to the little car its windows steamed up. As the vehicle pulls away, Owl drops silently and seems to follow it, back out on Lightwood Road towards Lower Lee. The traffic is thick and dirty, pushing its way en masse. It's tea time. The spire of the church falls into view as Ruby tops the first hill out of town, and she looks down at the long run of people in their boxes in front of her. Ruby fails to make the turn towards her house. She lives in Upper Lee and has another mile to go in a southerly direction if she wants to get there. Doesn't look like she has home time in mind, though, does it? No, indeed. One might even think that Ruby is being drawn towards that churchy spire. Ruby slows and turns into Alder Road, pulls up past the church. She rummages in her bag and finds a hat, a baseball cap. She shoves her hair into it and curls a scarf around her neck. She waits for the other activity in the road to pause, then gets out, noticing the lights burning in the church windows, as she locks the car and wanders off around the block on her recce. The lights are burning brightly in the church windows, 
and out of the open doorway, where vans stand with their own doors open, expelling a steady stream of pillowy black sacks and laden cardboard boxes. Hand to hand they move into the church, a jolly atmosphere of people, kids run about, parents puff and grunt with exertion, flushed of cheek, straight of back, and clear of conscience in their doing of good works. Tanya's silhouette appears briefly in the yellow archway, stops, suspended for an elegant beat, and returns, like a moment in a contemporary dance piece. Up the aisle we go anyway, through the throng of busy people sorting clothes and toys into piles, left at the pulpit and into the vestry, the softly quiet vestry, still carpeted with red axminster. Tanya stops and stares at the CCTV screens flickering black and white. Vans, bags, boxes, neighbours, children, help, camaraderie. There's a view of the inside of the tower and the chancel. She watches the doorway from the inside and the overall view of the nave. She turns then and locks the vestry door, then opens the laptop she takes from her bag. She logs in and watches as nothing happens in the crypt. It's very clean down there. No relics or old coffins, just boxes. Some are unopened flat-pack furniture boxes. Some have been taped closed, obviously having been used to transport something or other. There are little machines whirring, fan heaters or something, moving slowly from left to right, up, then down. She shuts it again. The dust floats. She looks around and contemplates her surroundings, her place in them. The church has been central to her life. She picks up a solid-looking pen, walks over to the wood-panelled wall, touches the inked tip to the wood grain, presses. She has to press hard, but the wood yields eventually. She keeps pressing, pulls the indentation down to make a stroke, works it so it's a proper groove, concentrates like an eight-year-old at their school, mid-afternoon, as the class gets on with their work. Voices approach, and she clicks it away and waits for Lance to knock. Lance doesn't knock. He tries the door. Tanya's face betrays utter hatred. There's a rapid knock then, and after a beat, she takes herself forward to unlock the door. Lance looks affronted, as if he's waiting for an apology. Tanya switches mode and smiles. Lance, good you're here. Come in. He shakes his head as she turns her back, swallows a laugh, sighs, and then enters with his hands shoved deep into his pockets. You called, lady. Seated, Tanya looks up and smiles again, a beautiful, warm smile full of indulgence. Terrifying. Lance barely notices it, so great is his belief in his own status. Lance, when you approach a closed door, particularly one with me on the other side of it, you should knock before you try and enter, okay? Why are you locking the door here? There's nothing. Okay. Yes, if it makes you feel better. Okay. 
Thank you, Lance. I really appreciate that. Yes, it would make me feel much, much better. It really... Yeah, all right. A pause. What time's he coming tomorrow? We have to be ready by midnight. (laughs) Really? Seems a bit melodramatic, don't you think? The witching hour. It's just a time on the clock that we can agree on that will give us enough time to complete the transfer and be ready for his visit. And the witching hour is 4am, not midnight. It's the darkest and quietest hour when bad people do bad things. Okay, if you Try and concentrate on the matter in hand, Lance. Have you got everything you need to set up in the crypt? The... You mean the basement? The basement is called a crypt in a church, Lance. Although I don't think there are any bodies in it. At least not now. Lance looks disgusted. He removes his hands from his pockets and scratches his head, places them on his hips, decides against that and puts them back in his pockets again. A mouse scuttles along the bottom of the wall behind Tanya between two boxes. Lance sees a glimpse of it and lurches his tall body to the right to see where it went and cricks his neck. Ah! What are you doing, Lance? Mouse! You saw a mouse? Yes, no doubt there will be vermin. I have a company coming to set traps in the morning. Have you got all the hardware, equipment, etc. that you need? Hmm he says, nodding painfully, rubbing his neck. So you only need to bring the devices and the product over? Yeah, yeah, it's simple. As long as we're not held up, it'll be straightforward. Good, that's good news. Right, couldn't you have asked me that on the phone? There it is again! He thrusts an arm out and points rigidly towards the corner of the room. Thank you for the mouse location service, Lance. Don't you mind them scuttling around around your feet? I was expecting you to bring Charity here, Lance. Did you go to the police station to collect her like I asked you to? Yeah, of course. Well, is she here? No. Why not? She wanted to walk. Did she? Right, okay. Has she gone home? I don't know. Tanya watches him. Lance is concentrating on the possible whereabouts of the mouse. She draws in a breath and smiles. Okay, Lance, that'll be all. I'll see you here tomorrow night. Tanya picks up her phone and hovers a finger while she waits for Lance to go. What? Oh, yeah, right, okay. He turns, eyes peeled for Mickey. Then the little rodent shoots out from between some boxes and runs in front of him. He screeches and starts stamping about, crushing the mouse against the skirting board with a growl. Gotcha, you nasty little shit! Tanya watches with distaste. There you go, says Lance, smug. Wonderful, thank you. Er, where are you going? Huh? Don't leave it there, Lance. Take it away. I haven't got any gloves. She stands suddenly, her face a storm, shoves her chair back and marches round her desk. She picks up the dead mouse by its tail, grabs Lance's hand and deposits the mouse in it, closing it firmly in his fist. Horrified, he starts to squirm, but take it, Tanya says. Lance sees that she means it 
and holding his hand out as far from himself as he can, leaves the office. Tanya locks the door after him and returns to her phone, calls a number. Charity, glad I've caught you. The street surfaces shine relentlessly. One or two windows have opened to ease the closeness of an air temperature too warm for February. There's Ruby at the entranceway between the Lee Community Garden and that bit of rough land, standing, gazing along the track. It's very dark. Usually it would be lit, wouldn't it? She allows her eyes to adjust so she can see adequately without having to light a torch. Settles into the place. Listens. Takes notice of her surroundings. The smells, the shadows, the sounds. All of it. Maps it in her bright mind. It's busy, the land around the track, she realises. Teeming with life. It's noisy with it. Of course, all of Lower Lee's gardens and green spaces are quite lively with creatures, large and small, common and not so common, as well as the very unusual, and the bloody unlikely, not to put too fine a point on it. Eric and Padma had a fine old time exercising their imaginations, eh? Gavin has noticed the hubbub too, and he listens, standing inside his front doorway, pretending to listen to Stefan, Brandon's husband and client of Gavin's. Gavin has been trying to say goodbye for some time, but Stefan is something of a chatterbox and has been trying to interest Gavin in the rumours surrounding the man from whom Gavin purchased his photography business. Yes, he had a very murky reputation. So... You bought his client list, or... Hmm? says Gavin, pulled away from trying to identify some distant screeching. Foxes, he assumes. Well, the business, really, his equipment, and... Yeah, his client list, I guess. Not that I've had much joy from that department. Some of his databases are so old. There's actual floppy disks in some of the boxes. God knows what's on them. I'll have to have a look. Yes, do. Well, I mean, I hope you don't get any nasty surprises. Although one presumes he wouldn't have left anything incriminating behind, would he? I mean, that would be stupid. He moved halfway around the world, I think. Very sudden. Did he? Right. Well, yeah, I got everything for a good price, so I think he did want a quick sale. Is that right? Well, anyway, I shouldn't take up any more of your time. Thank you again. Toodaloo, he says as he wanders off. Gavin stays standing in his front doorway for a moment. The owl hoots. Gavin flinches, searches the branches and locates her, settling herself in her new spot. Gavin raises his eyebrows in warning. She calls again and he hears a return call from over the back. He watches as she jumps into the air, accompanied by a volley of other animal noises. There's a cat fight underway in Tanya's garden, it seems. Crows are cawing, 
and there's a distant chattering sound. Gavin listens on until his stomach rumbles, pulling him back inside. He shuts the door, pads in his sock-covered feet into the kitchen, fills the kettle, gets a ready meal out of the fridge and pops it on the side, switches the oven on to warm, clicks the heating on, stands then, his conversation with Stefan poking at his conscience. He turns back down his hall corridor and goes into his little office. On his desk sits the plastic ID bracelet he picked up when he and Ruby walked along the track. He thinks on it and then lifts his head to survey the office shelves, pulls a step stool out and climbs up to pull down a large cardboard box. He gets on the floor with it and starts to unload the old files within. At the bottom is a plastic box, full of floppy disks. It's like a little filing box. The lid lifts up long ways so you can rifle through the contents easily. Well, you would be able to if it wasn't locked. Gavin pulls everything else out of the box, but there are no keys there. He returns to the kitchen and washes his dusty hands, pops his dinner in the oven, sets the timer, makes a cup of tea and takes it back to his office. He looks like he's planning a rummage. Yes, look, he's rolling his sleeves up and he's struck the hands-on-hips-where-do-I-start pose. There's shouting in the distance now. A scream. Kids, probably. He checks his phone for messages, but there's nothing. He mutters Eric's name and shakes his head, frowning at his new friend's silence. He pops the phone on the side, puts on some music ready for serious searching, and doesn't notice as the phone lights up once, then again, and then it's rampant with notifications as the neighbour chat swings into full gossip mode. <laughs> Eric is hiding still. You can see the vague flash of light from his bedroom as the television plays on. In the lantern room, devoid of storyteller and his cat, there is, nevertheless, a movement. A dark, determined shape pushes through the debris on the floor, the bits and pieces, papers, old boxes, the odd shoe. The animal snuffles about, drawing its long, fleshy tail behind it. The owl has taken perch outside and she watches, catches the rodent's glinting red eye for a moment. The rat removes itself from its predator's eyeline. Owl is gratified that it is observing the hierarchy, although she knows she'd struggle to lift him even if she did make a kill. He's an enormous rat, she thinks, blinking. There are more of them, actually, she realises. More big ones. Small ones, ones that are scratty and scruffy, ones that look sleek and healthy. The lantern door is firmly closed. It usually gapes slightly ajar. Doors in Lightwood Hall don't fit their frames, apart from the plastic one round the side. Eric must have locked it. The rats have taken over Eric's storytelling place while he lies low in his old bedroom. Hmm, they seem emboldened by Eric's absence, by his palpable fear, no doubt. Confident they are in their number, and in the strength of those fearless soldier rats populating the mob. 
Another shout goes up outside, and the rats still. Their whiskers twitch as they listen. Owl jumps and soars towards the noise, floats over the dark track, and fixes her gaze on two figures, trying to extract themselves from the undergrowth, it seems, clinging to each other in terror. She swoops lower, and one of the people, they're only young, two teenagers, sees her and ducks with a gasp and a swear. She circles again and hears a rumbling snort of a noise. Yes, there is snorting, growly snorting. And there, among the shaking scrub, is a dark hulking shape, low down, maybe a couple of feet tall and solid. It's moving forwards, stopping short of the kids, snorting at them, turning round and then retreating, tossing its head and then getting ready to advance again. Is it? It's a ball. You can see its little tusks. Little. They look dangerous. The vegetation all across the land is populated with little shivers and shakes and rustlings. Little sprays of earth fly up here and there, as animals paw and claw at the earth. Some are more effective than others. Near the track, molehills rise into their rounded peaks, and glints of this and that appear among the dark earth, as more seemingly random objects are pushed out from below by the industrious velvety creatures. Perhaps it was them that revealed Shirley's bike. Above the scene, there's that chattering sound again. Those monkey shapes flit among the ash trees above, still active since this morning. They swing and cling and stop to look and point as the mole contingent and other diggers work hard at pulling and pushing and digging and revealing bits and bats and odds and sods. The monkeys chatter shout to each other, laughing as each new artefact is revealed, egging the diggers on. The boar expels a great puff of steam as it blows another snort from its snout and stamps and draws its hoof on the ground with purpose. The tree-dwellers raise a great cacophony in support of it, which is taken up by the whole population of the old dark track. The young man, Caden, suddenly decides to take action, against the wishes of his companion, it looks like. He throws off her grip, though, and steps forward quickly, opening his coat and shouting, and it does the trick. The boar is surprised, convinced something large and scary is coming at it, and it retreats. Then it advances again. Oh, dear. Oh, hang on. Of course. Here's Ruby Hussein. Ruby has been advancing slowly and quietly and finishes her murmured phone call as she reaches the couple. We need armed response. OK, thanks, will do. She stows her phone. Hey, she whispers. Guys, over here. Stay back, there's a massive angry pig. Shh, quiet. I know I've seen it. Listen to me. My name's Ruby Hussain, and I'm a police officer. Help is on the way. I think the pig is acting defensively, so you don't want to threaten it. 
stand still and stay really quiet. And when it retreats again, back away towards me very slowly. Don't shout and don't move towards it. Caden! Oh, God, says Ruby. Oh, it's me mum, says Caden quietly. Where are you? The woman switches on her phone torch and sweeps it across the track, eliciting another swell of animal sounds. Switch that off, hisses Ruby, and stay where you are. I'm a police officer. I've called for help. You need to stay quiet and stay there. What? My son is there. I know. I can see them. Please switch off the light and stay quiet. She does. Nice firm instructions there from Ruby. She's doing well. The animals quieten and Ruby settles her concentration back into her environment and on the frightened youngsters. Their faces are wide-eyed and bloodless. She can see them shaking. The boar is undercover, so Ruby gestures and they slowly start to walk towards her, half-turned to keep an eye on the animal. In the distance, there are sirens and the blue lights start to glint. Ruby watches the brush for signs of porcine intent. The teenagers start moving a little faster, reach Ruby, and once past her, they run. She closes her eyes as she expects the noise to bring the animal out. But the undergrowth stays quiet. As the kids reach Caden's mother and stand waiting for Ruby to follow them, there seems to be a faint chiming sound. Ruby doesn't follow them. She centres herself again, settles back into the place she's been studying for the past half an hour. She lets the tinkling chimes fill her ears as she sweeps her gaze back across the dark ground. Her eye lights on another figure. Two figures, right at the other end of the track. Mere silhouettes, really, but Ruby recognises them. Shirley and her small dog. Seems Shirley's been soaking up the scene, too. Utterly still she is just inside the wall that marks the ginnel. Reg is sat by her, scenting the air. The two women stare at each other. Does Ruby raise her chin ever so slightly? Shirley doesn't blink. Poke her face. Officer Hussein. A voice behind her. She turns and sees Matthew. She likes Matthew, and she gives him a raise of the eyebrows and a can-you-believe-it smile. She's about to begin her own retreat when there comes a sudden yappy barking right behind Matthew, its mixed dog straining forward on its leash. Mick is shouting at it to stop barking and come back, and oh, such a noise they both make. This time, the animal orchestra really goes for it. Bass, treble, percussion, it's like last night of the proms without the patriotism. The boar bellows out in distress, and then loses it, charging straight towards the intruders, past Ruby, who it seems has been subsumed into the environment and is beneath the notice of the fanged porky monster. It's single-minded in its attack, and faster than you'd expect. Matthew doesn't stand a chance, as the boar charges straight into his legs and knocks him over 
the poor man. Ruby shouts at everyone to move out of its path. The kids and Caden's mum are hiding behind a tree, and there's a gaggle of others, including Cat and Sally, looking on from the community garden, who stand back, hiding behind sheds and benches and whatever they can find, as the boar seems to become dazed and trots past the onlookers, veers off the track and onto Rowan Drive. Out it goes onto Hawthorne, trotting around haphazardly, before it seems to make a decision and starts running up Hawthorne Road, leaving behind it the chilling howl of the gored police officer. The other animals have ceased their noise to allow his voice its horrific solo. Another police car arrives on Rowan in the wake of the attack, along with a police van emitting armed officers. Ruby can be heard calling for an ambulance as Matthew writhes in bloody agony, his trousers slashed to reveal a hot mess of wrought flesh. And is that... Yes, that's a flash of bone there. Told you those tusks were dangerous. Ruby stands up, her attention trained on the undergrowth in case of other danger, ready to protect Matthew, and sees that Shirley has gone. Ruby casts her eyes about for her, but it's like she's been beamed back up to the mothership. No trace. The animals slowly begin to set up their noise again. It builds and builds, a tapestry of wild song that is slowly becoming deafening in its intensity. Shirley has not in fact been beamed anywhere. She simply turned round the way she came and slipped back into the ginnel quick-sharp destined for Eric's house, already on the phone trying to raise him. No answer. She emerges with Reg on high alert onto the street and comes face to face with the boar, who has made it all the way around the block and now stands adjacent to Eric's house, as if it's been following a sat-nav to that very spot. Reg snarls. Shirley bends down slowly and picks him up and hugs him to her, trying to keep him quiet. The pig-like beast spies them. It clomps its hooves, sniffs the ground and the air, tosses its head menacingly. Then it turns towards the open gate. It pours the tarmac again and then just trots pleasantly off into the overgrown garden. Shirley decides against heroism and removes herself and the whining dog across the road and then further up where there is solid wall between her and the beast, away from his large, truffling snout. Sensible Shirley. She gets back on the phone. More neighbours are gathering in the vicinity of the community garden, people standing about, talking on their phones and to each other in disbelief. The injured police officer is quiet. He's white. Blood leaks from him at an alarming rate, and Ruby is negotiating with the paramedics. She'll collect her car and join them at the hospital. High above them all, Owl wings it in a wider arc, and the sound of the crowded track is less up here. Now we can see Charity and Elle as they approach the scene, hands in pockets, hoods down now with the warmth of the evening and their mile-long journey on foot, trainers keeping them quiet as they chat in low voices and steal back into the neighbourhood 
Shirley is typing frantically on her phone as the girls unknowingly approach her. Ruby rounds the corner behind the girls. Her instinct to call out and warn them to stay off the track dampened when she notices Shirley in the distance and her ears prick up at the couple's conversation. So she sent the lawyer. So she says. I really can't understand why they didn't charge me, Al. I was there and I ran away and I had the knife in my hand. Even if I didn't actually stab Padma, why didn't they charge me with, I don't know, perverting the course of justice or something? You know, I, I feel like I've been given a second chance, you know? To run away, I mean. Do you think I should, maybe? Ruby stops by her car, unlocks it, turns her head away from the girls, ears still peeled. She stares unfocused at the church rising beyond its tall stone wall, lights ablaze from within. No, I don't, because I think you've got a guardian angel, says Al. You mean Tanya? Charity glances back at the church they've just passed, then pulls her hood back up. El nods. I don't understand why, though. Maybe she feels guilty. For Tony? Yeah. I don't think she was involved. I did before, but now... So why is she so bothered about what Henry did then? I don't know. She thinks it'll reflect badly on her business, I think. Or double bluff, maybe? She hates his mum, too. She shrugs. That detective is sussy. He might be working with her. You think? Could be. But maybe I'm fantasising. Ruby's face hardens and she relocks her car and sends a message to Matthew's wife saying she's held up. She resumes her walk. The two would-be storytellers fall into silence as their steps take up a rhythm. Then Charity stops and turns to Elle. Ruby sidesteps into someone's front drive, luckily unlit. Why did you leave? I could have been banged up. I didn't know you'd, like, blacked out or whatever. I knew you'd be okay, because I knew you didn't do it. And I wouldn't have let you get blamed. You know I wouldn't. Charity's eyes search Elle's face. Eric was so scared. I'm sorry, Char. Elle reaches for Charity's hand. Charity nods slightly and squeezes it. You want to come back to mine? She says, with a little blush. Hey! Whisper calls Shirley as she sees them. Oh! Hey! Charity sees her and drops Elle's hand. Man, what's all that noise from the ginnel? The noise does seem to have risen again. Shh! Cross over! There's a dangerous animal in Eric's garden. The noise is from the track, says Shirley, as they meet over the other side of the road. Elle raises her eyebrows. Is it? Right. Shit. <laughs> Gavin is eating his Singapore noodles for one straight out of the pot. He's sat in his office in his desk chair. He chews and thinks. Where would it be? He chews and frowns, gazes and chews. He could just smash the thing open. 
He stabs at his noodles, spears a prawn, stops, prawn hovering on fork. Has he remembered? Is something tapping at his memory? Oh, no, he's noticed the WhatsApp group messages. One's just pinged. Sherl. He rejects the prawn, reads the note, quickly scrolls through the neighbour's conversation. A boar? A boar? Ripped a policeman's leg off, nearly. And Ruby, what's she do? Is Ruby okay? Ruby's okay. Shirley expands. Your little friend, the policewoman, was a hero, rescuing Caden and Alicia from a goring. She was in her civvies. Didn't know she lived round here, Gavin. Anyway, the boar is now in Eric's garden, but I can't raise him on the phone and I'm not going in on my own. I've told Kat to go and tell the police on Rowan and get them round. But we should try and get to Eric, so can you come over here? Or shall we let the little girl in blue sort it out now? Would that suit you bet? Gavin stares. This is not like Shirley. The rambling, the acid tone, the long text message. I didn't mean to send that, it wasn't finished. Gavin tries calling Shirley. It goes to voicemail. He rings Eric. No answer. He tries Shirley again. He sighs and goes and puts his shoes on. The girls are here, outside Eric's. Can you come? Gavin reads the message and sends a thumbs up. He's annoyed. He's not usually annoyed with Shirley. His brain ticks for a moment, but then sparks and he reaches for his jacket. Brandon is pouring wine in his small but brightly coloured front room. He's listening to Stefan telling him about his portrait session with Gavin and waffling on about the photographer from whom Gavin bought his business. Or, well, bits of it. All very strange, really, because there were rumours, does Brandon remember? He was always round Lance's house or in the pub with Tony. Brandon is nodding, but has seen the notifications on his phone, goes to pick it up, and then notices the television, which is muted, what looks like the Lee Community Garden, and... Is that Caden Wright? And Alicia, who played the third witch in Macbeth last year. He grabs the remote control and increases the volume. Brandon, that's really rude. Shh! Look! Stefan turns, drops his jaw. There's monkeys in there, and I don't know, man, it was like the Serengeti or something and this massive angry pig with big tusks. It attacked that policeman. It was protecting its young or something. I don't know. We were just chatting on the bench in there, and we didn't see it because the lights were all off for some reason, so we could only hear these mad monster noises. But, well, anyway, yeah, the animals was really going for it, weren't they? It was mad. That policewoman saved us. I don't know who she is, but she's like David Attenborough and Vicky McClure rolled into one. Well impressive says Alicia. What is also impressive is the speed at which the local evening news have got a camera on scene, but of course that will be Helen Markham, who lives at number 21. Brandon stops and shakes his head. Why am I watching this on the telly? It's on our own street. Come on. And he's suddenly back in his big bright coat, keys in hand. Stefan is still holding out his wine glass, hoping for a refill. Oh, right, 
yes, hang on, I'm coming, he mutters. Outside, it's like a football match is about to start, the crowds walking down the road sure of their destination. Down the hill they march, and among them, Brandon and Stefan realise that it's the second time in three days they're storming it down Hawthorne to find out what awful thing has happened in their usually quiet neighbourhood. The streetlights throw patterns of tree branches on the ground, and the moon shines above as a breeze begins to tickle the newly grown spring flowers in front gardens. The odd brown leaf skitters across the tarmac. In the lukewarm dark, Gavin springs forward from his front door. He's not generally a running man, but there's urgency in his gait as he jogs towards Eric's. He sees them loitering on the pavement, and he shouts and speeds up, as the blue light of a police car approaches from the other direction. He slows and gives a what-do-we-do-now face to Shirley and the girls. He says in a low voice, Elle, do you have a key for the hall? Yeah, but Shirley says there's a boar or something, says Elle. She doesn't look enthusiastic about meeting the animal. Yeah, but it's probably a mim, isn't it? So doesn't that mean you can, I don't know, mesmerise it or something, says Gavin. What? asks Charity, looking at him as if he's just landed from another planet. The mim, the stories, they're coming back to life, and the animals on the track are all part of different stories, and they're getting agitated. Eric's scared, I think. He can't seem to operate without Padma. And well, you're the new ones, aren't you? I think you're the only people who can help. The girl's face is pale, they look at each other. Shirley sighs and shakes her head. Gavin sees this. Well, sorry, Shirley, but what do you suggest? I don't know, Gavin, but the important thing is to speak to Eric, isn't it? Oh, is it? Sorry, I forgot you're the only sensible person in the neighbourhood. The police car stops a few feet away. Ruby has seen Gavin approach and is out of her hiding place and coming towards them under cover of her newly arrived colleagues. God, Gavin, just maybe start with some facts rather than launching headlong into your fantasy theories. Just learn to communicate. I can communicate perfectly well, thanks. We don't have time to waste setting the bastard scene. Charity's eyes widen at Gavin's choice of language. Shirley's face darkens and she steps to him. Occam's razor, Gavin. Heard of that? Yeah, I have. I can use Wikipedia too. But I wasn't the only one to suspect zebras, was I? And now there's a bloody boar in the undergrowth like it's medieval times. But, yeah, you just keep your head firmly planted in the sand. Yeah, Occam's bloody razor. How do you explain a testy boar in a small northern English town of a Tuesday evening, eh? It could have escaped from a zoo, Shirley interjects. Poorly, because Gavin is not for stopping. And if you think my theories are so bloody unlikely, why did you spend a whole evening giving me the impression of having a genuine conversation with me about this? Were you just humouring me? No, of course I wasn't. It's a goddamn mim, Shirley. You know it is. Gavin looks like he might cry. Shirley stares at him. Reg is confused. You told me about the bike. What bike? asks Elle. Mr Barron? 
comes a thin voice from behind them. They turn. I'll deal with this, Officer Hussein, says a tall policeman with a ruddy complexion, stepping forward heavily. Ruby smiles encouragingly at Gavin from behind him. It's in there, says Shirley impetuously, pointing over the wall. Right, can you move further along, please, away from the gate entry? There's someone in the house, says Gavin firmly, glaring at Shirley. We need to warn him not to come out. Have you tried calling him? asks Ruby. Officer, I'll deal with this. He's as large as a tree, this police person. He offers the palm of his hand mid-air to Ruby and turns back. Have you tried calling him? Yes, say Shirley and Gavin together. I'll send him a text message, says Gavin. I've left a voicemail already. I'll send him a text message, says Gavin, with eyes like flint. He is not happy, is Gavin. Yes, please, sir, if you could, and then we'll need to take his phone number. Constable, can you locate the loudspeaker, please? And can the rest of you please move back? The policeman ushers them further up the road away from all the garden exits and speaks into his radio with updates and questions and general damage-limiting stuff, just as more police vehicles draw up in the road, forming a block to the traffic. Gavin looks up towards the lantern room in the hall. It's dark. There's only a faint orange glow from the second floor of the house. Then he sees a flick of one of the old worn curtains. Eric's there and he looks down and locates Gavin and gives him a limp wave. Okay, looks like he got the message to stay put, he calls to the tree man. Ruby moves towards him among the small civilian crowd and Gavin asks... Are you okay? What are you doing back on the track? You're not on duty, are you? Yes, I'm fine, Mr. Barron. I thought we agreed. Gavin. Ruby looks at Shirley, who is giving her daggers. Then Ruby shakes her head slightly, trying to shut him up. Gavin frowns and catches Shirley's eye himself and stares back boldly. Oh, this is new. Gavin is no longer the underdog, it seems. He's quite angry. More police are unwinding crime scene tape across the road. Two more vans draw up and armed police climb out. They've got guns, says Charity. Are they going to shoot it? Can't they just use a tranquilizer dart? It's too dangerous because it's dark and it's a difficult location. They need to be sure it goes down first time. They are very dangerous animals, explains Ruby. Gavin is on his tiptoes, peering over the wall and then up at Eric's window. Where's he gone? Gavin's phone beeps. He reads the message, glances at Ruby, satisfied her attention is with Charity, and leans towards Elle. He shows her the text. Her face pales, but she looks at him and then gives a slight incline of her head. They slope off together. Shirley's eyes burn into Gavin, who sets his jaw and communicates very effectively, purely through the use of his chin, that she should stay there and keep quiet. The pair hurry back up Alder and back down Hawthorne all the way to the bottom. They break into a trot as soon as they're out of sight of the others, and then they're running on along the big road and left up the ginnel. They slow down and creep quietly along, keeping flat to the fence. They wait 
until there's a chance, and then they both shoot across the track. They're inside the perimeter of the police cordon, but remain unnoticed. Elle signals Gavin on, and she takes him to a small hole in the fence further up. They climb through and stand up carefully, slowly. The breeze has picked up, and the air is populated with swirling tree bits, some of which seem to glint in the blue revolving police lights. They try to see to the back of Eric's house, and there, there he is, standing on the terrace, his grey hair oscillating above his head at the mercy of the warm air currents. Eric sees them and points urgently to where they're sure they can see steam rising, and the leaves and twigs are shivering with the breathing of the animal. It's distressed, they can tell somehow. Gavin tries to mind to Eric what should they do. Eric lies down, at length, on the crumbling paved surface of the terrace and reaches to slowly push the door below it open. He beckons them to herd the thing inside. Is he insane? Gavin whispers to Elle, who glances at him and then takes out a little book from her pocket. She flicks through. What are you doing? Have you got instructions? A snort from the boar. Shit! Gavin steps behind a tree. Elle pulls out a stub of a pencil and starts to write. Gavin can't see what, it's too dark. She scribbles away, and as she does, there's the sound of the chiming that Gavin heard earlier that day and that Charity heard on the track yesterday. And Elle looks at him. She hears it too, but it doesn't stop her from scrunching up her bit of paper grabbing a big handful of the soft, muddy earth from the ground and forming it around the note. She then grabs Gavin's hand and hauls him forward towards the door. Eric watches them, his hands covering his head defensively. He seems to be crying. Yes, he's actually sobbing. Elle glances at him, shouts, It's okay, Eric! and stops, still holding Gavin's hand. She throws the ball of mud and paper towards the door. It's a terrible shot and bounces off the doorframe. They all let out a gasp. Was that supposed to... Shit! Yes! Gavin doesn't think. As the sound of the beast crashing through the trees and shrubs gets louder, he dashes forward, grabs the ball of words and earth, and launches himself, throwing it mid-dive through the open doorway. The boar skids to a halt in front of him and Elle, its head mere inches from Gavin's prone body. It snorts and paws and makes a whining noise. It sniffs at Gavin and shakes its big meaty head as if it's trying to shift unhelpful thoughts. Gavin is frozen rigid, eyes tight shut as he feels the animal's breath on his face. The animal eyes L with its little beady globes, scents the air again, and turns, trotting sedately into the darkness of the storeroom. L gives it a moment, then follows it on soft feet, reaches for the doorknob, and quietly pulls the door shut behind it. Silence. The animals have ceased their commotion. The breeze stirs again, 
and soon it sets up its own background noise, joined then by the police loudspeaker, heralding the start of an armed search of the dark old garden and pulling the three friends out of their disbelieving stupor back to the very real prospect of being hunted with live ammunition. Area and may shoot. I repeat, armed police are entering the area and may shoot. You have been listening to Low Light, written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley for Crawley Voice Studio. Find out more at crawleyvoicestudio.com. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate that there's so many of you sticking with the series. I hope you're enjoying it. Please, if you do enjoy it, click like on any episodes that you like. Please share it among anyone else you think might enjoy it. And most of all, if you have just a little bit of time, just a couple of lines of review would be so helpful to me. Thanks ever so much. See you next time. <laughs>